And it is the 7th Avenue Project. And um, yes, that is our old theme music, back at least for this week. I'm Robert Polly, your host this Sunday and every Sunday at noon. And uh, today, a trip all the way back to 2008 for an interview I did with Forrest Robinson, UC Santa Cruz Professor of American Studies. The subject was Samuel Clemens, the real guy behind the pseudonym and the persona known as Mark Twain. Turns out there was a great deal of dissonance between the man and the mask, and in this way, as in so many others, Clemens slash Twain really was an essential American writer, a reflection of our country's own conflicted history. What Mark Twain's writing tells us about him and about ourselves, that's next on the 7th Avenue Project. Coming up, a conversation with Mark Twain scholar Forrest Robinson. His new book discloses more than we knew about Twain, maybe more than we as a country have wanted to know. America's always cherished a view of Twain as wisecracking entertainer, crafter of companionable fiction, great for young adults and Disney adaptations. But Robinson says the truth is much darker and more complicated. He shows Twain as a deeply tormented man, torn between his ideals and a nagging awareness of his own moral failings. And, says Robinson, that tension in Twain's life and work reveals much about our own nation's divided soul, particularly on the questions of slavery and race. Forrest Robinson joined me recently to talk about his book. Forrest Robinson, thanks for coming in. Pleasure. Um, your book is called The Author Cat, Clemens's Life in Fiction. Folks out there may know that Mark Twain's real name is Samuel Clemens. Mark Twain is a pen name. And that's an issue for you, the use of names. My point in using the, the name Clemens is that that's the name of a real person, a fellow that was born in 1835 and died in 1910, and in fact wrote all of those books. And it's that person I'm interested in. So I'm reading the books really largely for their biographical, autobiographical uh, interest. And so it doesn't make much sense for me to refer those kinds of things to somebody, to Mark Twain, which is a pseudonym which he adopted in 1863 when he was, you know, 28 years old. And and Mark Twain, as the public has come to know him, the jaunty humorist, is is really um, a facade, a mask, in your view. Yes, I mean, I think that's right. He he, it was something he recognized as part of his appeal, and that he labored, I, I suppose you could say, to preserve. But it's also a collaboration. That is to say that there's an enormous amount of evidence right on the surface of things, not to mention uh, in, the, in the sort of scholarly archives about Mark Twain, to indicate that he had a very troubled life. You don't have to dig very deep to find that. So the question then becomes, why is it that Americans have clinged so tenaciously to a perception of Mark Twain that is uh, very incomplete? And, and, and you don't have to dig very deep to find out how incomplete it is. There's something about the jolly humorist that we, that we crave and that we hang on to, uh, the, real, the reality of the situation notwithstanding. Mm -hmm. And I think that's even true in the Mark Twain industry, in this large um, community of, of academics and popular writers about Mark Twain, most of whom have uh, persisted in holding on to that uh, image and just don't want to let it go. Now, you mentioned that most people haven't dug deep enough to discover the real Samuel Clemens. Um, and that gets me to the title of your book, The Author Cat. What's that refer to? Well, 
That's a letter of 1904 that uh, Clemens wrote to his very good friend, American writer William Dean Howells, in which Clemens says that uh, autobiography, which is designed to be a telling of the truth, in his experience of it, turns out to be nothing but lies, dissimulation, that he finds it impossible to tell the truth. Every time he comes upon something that's really importantly true about himself, he, he, he lies about it. So he, he likens himself to a cat. He says, I'm the author cat, and what I'm doing is just scratching dirt upon my waist, on my poop. And he, so it's a wonderful image of, of the idea of the autobiographer trying to hide what it is that he, what he is, that he has revealed. Which, of course, puts me in the role of the... The of guy the, who rakes the kitty litter. That's right. I'm into the <laughs> kitty litter. And, and some of my critics will, will put it that way, too. Robinson is this mared sniffer. <laughs> <laughs> to use the uh, French term. <laughs> uh, well, let's start raking the kitty litter. Um, why don't we? Um, central to your um, investigation of, of who Samuel Clemens really was is this idea of bad faith. This is something you've developed over the years, um, not only in this book, but also a, a previous book that you uh, that was called Bad Faith, The Dynamics of Deception in Mark Twain's America. What do you mean by that? What I mean by it is, is, is the way in which we deceive ourselves and others about our departures from what we take to be our highest ideals. It's when we don't do the things that we think we ought to do and then conceal that failure from ourselves. And you say that, that Twain practiced bad faith in his writing uh, and that we as readers also, you know, engage in bad faith when we read Mark Twain. Right. Do you want me to explain that to you, how I, that works? Yeah, well, sure briefly? do. Sure do. Yeah. Well, let's be I, – I, the, the, where this – I mean, bad faith that we all – engage in bad faith. Uh, Whenever seems, we fib to ourselves or mm-hmm. fib to other people. Uh-huh. About, about where we, we really know that we've done something wrong and yet we refuse to acknowledge it to ourselves and other people. And they may uh, 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 collaborate with us in that denial so that our denial of our own transgressions will be aided and abetted by the collaboration of other people who are equally motivated to conceal the same thing from themselves. In Mark Twain's life, bad faith has as its central focus the institution of American slavery. And in the United States before the Civil War, a tremendous amount of energy and ink was spilled attempting to make a virtuous thing of the institution of slavery. Nobody doubted for a moment that there was something barbaric and inhumane about what Americans were doing to between four and five million black people. You say nobody doubted? Nobody doubted it, in my opinion. That, that, that nobody who had anything to do with slavery could possibly fail to see how wrong it was. And yet Americans in huge numbers were devoted to the idea that it was in the slaves' interest that we were, were involved in that institution, that we were giving them Christianity, that we were saving their souls, that we were giving the benefits of European civilization, that in a sense to be a slave was to be the beneficiary of that relationship and not horribly to be its victim. Mm-hmm. I don't really believe anybody completely believed that, but uh, millions of people needed to in order to persist in, in the institution of slavery. How else could you possibly support it? So a huge amount of um, psychic energy on the part of, uh, of Americans is spent justifying slavery when they know it ain't so. That's right. So they're having it both ways, and bad faith always implies that. It was, why would you? Uh, why would you deny something if you didn't 
already know something was wrong. Denial has to result from the perception of of something that's that's wrong. So it doesn't happen in a vacuum. So it always implies knowledge of the thing being denied. And it and for me it always implies too that the denial will invariably be imperfect. Mm. Now now Samuel Clemens, aka Mark Twain, grew up in Missouri, slave holding state. His family had slaves. Mm-hmm. Family had slaves. His dad um was an anti abolitionist. He fought mm-hmm. against those people trying to abolish slavery. That's right. So they were pretty deep into it. That's right. But but Twain, I mean, as we've come to know him, was a humanist, uh, human rights activist, um, hated slavery, at least the adult, you know, mature Twain, that, mm-hmm. right? All true. Yeah. So where does the bad faith come in? Well, the, the bad faith, um, it's complicated in his case because as, an, as in his later life, he never denied that he had been uh, deeply involved and his family had been involved in slavery nor did he attempt in later life to defend the institution. He, he understood very well, however, that it was possible to live in that state of denial because he had himself for many years. So he recognized how it worked and, and wrote uh, very well about it. Did he completely escape it? No, because so, there's so much evidence in his writing that however much he tried to put himself, if you want, on the side of the angels on this question, that his 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 writing would drift back into uh, strange kinds of complicity with the very thing that he was trying to deny. So there was a sense that he was always struggling to completely uh, disentangle himself from this uh, set of attitudes and feelings about black people that, that I don't think he ever completely uh, escaped. There was a time when he was a young man growing up in Missouri that he didn't disapproves so strongly of slavery. Yeah, the writing that we have about it is wonderfully complicated because he'll describe uh, slaves being chained together and pushed down the street. He he, he witnessed a, a, the murder of a slave in the streets of Hannibal. He saw slaves being sold. A member of a slave in his own family was sold. And his accounts of those are always freighted with regret and guilt. Uh, even at the same time that he will say, as a child... I I knew for certain that there was nothing wrong with slavery. That it, when I went to church, we were all told right that the, that there were you know ample justifications for slavery slavery in the Bible. But in the very same voice, with those defenses of his own involvement in slavery, comes this this recurrent sense that there is this lingering feeling that, that he knew from the beginning that there was something wrong. And that's what really bothered him, is, I think, finally made it impossible for him to, to extricate himself completely from this guilt, was this sense that even as a child, he recognized the, the, the iniquity of slavery, but, but was unable to speak against it, uh, in part because the prohibitions were so strong, but that also that those prohibitions had been internalized. Mm. And it's a very complicated state of mind. I mean, bad faith involves the idea that you can know and not know the same thing at the same time, which is logically scandalous. And yet I think in much of our ordinary life, we live exactly in that place. Well, Freud would say we, we, we may sublimate it, but that it always comes back. You know, or we repress it, and, yeah. and, and then it's definitely going to return. And in Mark Twain's work, you definitely see this constant return of the repressed yeah. over and over and over again. Yeah. 
You recount uh, an incident from Twain's boyhood that's really poignant um, that involved a slave boy, I guess one of his family's slaves. Right. That's what I was thinking about. I mean, he, he recalls that there was a boy that, that was a slave child in their house who made a lot of noise, and it was all this sort of joyous hooting. And it made young Sam Clemens uneasy. He didn't like all that racket. So he said to his mother, please make him stop. And his mother said, I, I, I understand your feelings, son, but, I, but I, I don't want to make him stop because when he's joyous like that, it makes me feel that he's not really recognizing. He doesn't see the true pathos of his condition, that he's not feeling... Uh, bereft, that he doesn't see that his mother has been taken away from him. He doesn't see that he'll spend the rest of his life in bondage. So it makes me feel better when he's uh, whistling and singing, and so I won't stop him. It has very little to do, of course, with the slave's feelings and everything to do with her own, so that she's willing to let the the, the slave child continue in that behavior simply because it helps her Mm. in her bad faith denial of of what it is that she f- wants not to see in, in that situation, which is the tragedy of it, and her responsibility for it, her complicity in it. And I think Mark Twain cannot have failed, Sam Clemens cannot have failed to recognize in some degree what was, in, what was involved in that transaction. He also remembers his own insensitivity in, in wanting his mom to shut the boy up. Sure. Yeah. He does, indeed. You're in fact, right. he seems to remember everything that he did in his life that could be a cause for shame or guilt. Oh, my. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Mark Twain is the, is the one of the most extraordinarily uh, guilt-ridden people that I've ever, ever, you know, studied carefully. And it's partly something that was just a feature of his personality, partly of his religious training and a very, very stern kind of American Calvinism that he got from his mother. And then part, I think, of this uh, this kind of sanguine personality that he was very much given to optimism. And he was a kind of a bipolar. Mm. I mean, I guess you'd say that today. I don't mean that clinically. But that he had tremendous highs and tremendous lows. But when it comes to guilt, boy, did this guy overdo it. I mean, we know people who know anything about um, Sam Clemens slash Mark Twain's life said it was absolutely um, rife with tragedy. I mean, he had more than his share. Almost everybody who was nearest and dearest died prematurely. Mm-hmm. Siblings when he was young, his brother Henry when he was in his 20s, his son died in his infancy, his daughters later died young, his wife died before he did. Mm-hmm. His dad died when he was 11. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's an unbelievable death toll. Mm-hmm. And yet he seems to have felt responsible for at least a number of these deaths. That's right. Uh, that's the remarkable part of it. I mean, by Victorian standards, I mean, it, there was a lot of death in his in his life among people close to him. But what stands out is exactly what you've said, that he took responsibility for all of it. I mean, it was as though his ego uh, could not imagine anything bad happening to people close to him without his being responsible for it. Mm. Uh, and uh, there's a certain kind of wonderful psychological honesty and acuity in that uh, to the extent that our feelings about people that we're close to is always somewhat ambiguous. We always have ambivalent feelings about the people with, with, with whom we're the closest. And Mark Twain, I think, suffered more than most of us do 
in that sense of when they were suddenly taken away that somehow their their death their, their or their misfortune was geared to the the sort of dark pole of his own ambivalence uh, he had this feeling that for example when his brother henry died in 1858 uh, henry was the the model for sid sawyer and tom sawyer is a very unattractive kid uh, <laughs> the brother of Tom Sawyer. The brother of Tom Sawyer. And Clemens really did feel that somehow Henry's death w was geared to his own fratricidal impulse that is perfectly clear in the writing. That there were times when he sort of wished his brother was dead and, yeah. and, and, and it turned and out to And his brother happen. had the terrible bad judgment to up and die on him. Tell us the circumstances of that death because um, – they're they're quite interesting and 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 for a person as uh, as prone to guilt as Mark Twain, one can imagine how they could make him feel guilty. Yeah, the accounts are always. Uh, I mean, the the problem with the accounts is that they always tend to justify the guilt that he feels. Mm -hmm. So we don't really know how truthful they are. Uh. But the account that he gives of Henry's death is extraordinary. He he claims he had dreams of Henry in his coffin uh, in the weeks before he died, and more importantly. They were working together on a steamboat, and uh, they were uh, Henry was in a very sort of lowly capacity as a mud clerk on on this steamboat, the Pennsylvania that, that they were both on. And what's a mud clerk? It's really like an unpaid apprentice. It's like an intern. He uh. just does all the worst work and gets nothing for it. Mm. But it's the condition of promotion into better jobs. And before they left for uh, uh, New Orleans to go upriver, Henry asked his brother Sam what it was appropriate for him to do in the event of a of a uh, boiler explosion or any kind of disaster on the steamboat. Not uncommon on steamboats in those Not days. Not at all uncommon. And Sam said it's your responsibility to go on board and help passengers escape to safety. Well, circumstances... Uh, developed so that Henry was on the Pennsylvania alone when it went upriver. Mark, uh, Sam Clemens didn't go with him. And just outside of Memphis, Tennessee, the boilers on the Pennsylvania blew up, and Henry apparently went back on board. He was, was thrown into the water, but went back on board to try to save passengers, inhaled steam, and as a result died after three or four days uh, in a, a kind of makeshift hospital. In Memphis, Mark Twain got there in time. Sam got there in time to see his brother die. There are accounts in the local papers of his grief and so on. In his judgment, he had been the cause of his brother's death. Mm. Uh, of course, he wasn't, but you would. there was no way to persuade him that that wasn't true. And he writes about it for the rest of his life and never forgives himself. And he writes this, um, this abject letter to uh, his sister-in-law, mm -hmm. Molly Stotts Clemens. Um, and I'll quote from it here. Long before this reaches you, my poor Henry, my darling, my pride, my glory, my all, will have finished his blameless career, and the light of my life will have gone out in utter darkness. Oh, God, this is hard to bear. Hardened, hopeless, I lost, 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 and ruined, sinner as I am. I, even I, have humbled myself to the ground and prayed as never man prayed before, that the great God might let this cup pass from me, that he would strike me to the earth, but spare my brother, that he would pour out the fullness of his just wrath upon my wicked head, but have mercy, mercy, mercy upon that unoffending boy. Right. Methinks he flagellates himself too much. Really, much too much, yeah. And there's that word I is far more um, 
There's far more eyes than there are Henrys in that. Right. The letter's ultimately about Mark Twain's own intolerable grief rather than Henry's uh, loss. Uh, There is that kind of odd egotism about it that's quite remarkable. People in that era, um, did they have a much more um, fierce sense of responsibility and culpability than we we tend to now in our feel-good era? I mean, Hmm. is this true? I mean, you you hear about people who take huge burdens upon themselves in in those times or, or... commit themselves body and soul to causes or take vows that they must keep or die. I mean, my sense is his, 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 his kind of uh, reaction to these things was maybe less unusual than it would be now. Yes, I think that's probably right. I think we're harder now. Harder? Yeah, I think we are. I or think, more selfish? Or Yes. I mean, I think that so much – today, it's, it's enough to justify so much of our behavior by simply saying, it's in my self-interest to do this mm. or that. Mm. And that's all that you really need to say in order to justify the worst kinds of things, really. I don't think that would have worked in Mark Twain's time. Mm-hmm. Uh, there, if you want, it was a more Christian civilization than ours. And the, you know, the loss of those kinds of values is debated uh, – but it seems to me he was still very much informed by a, a set of Christian values, even though he was an atheist f- for much of the late part of his life, although an atheist who constantly struggled with God, yeah. wrote to God, wrote about God. I mean, he was a very interesting atheist. Raged against God. He was an atheist who raged against God. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, you spoke a, a moment ago about how in his fiction and in his other writings um, – You'd often see this kind of weird back and forth, this kind of wrestling match between, um, you know, an impulse to sort of reckon with moral problems and then to to back off and and evade them. Mm-hmm. And I want to look at how that plays out. This this game of bad faith that you describe um, in some of his works. Um, how about let's say Huck Finn, since we were on the subject of slavery, the adventures of Huckleberry Finn being the fiction he wrote that comes closest to confronting slavery. Mm-hmm. You know, the rough outlines, a boy and a man trying to escape to freedom on a raft in the Mississippi River, the boys fleeing an abusive father, and the man, Jim, is fleeing slavery. Um, where's the bad faith in, in that story? Well, it's everywhere. In it. <laughs> but, I mean, I'll give you an example or two of how it works. Huck and Jim come upon a house that's half sunk in the river. And uh, they go into it. It's half sunk in the river. Jim goes in first, and he sees a dead body in the floor that he recognizes immediately as Pat Finn. The father of Huck. The father of Huck, who's dead. And he says to Huck, you can't come in. Don't come in. It's, he, he says it's too gashly. And they gather up some stuff, and they go back on their raft, and the house goes on down the river. And Huck's not very happy with this situation. There's something about the way Jim has handled this that makes him suspicious. The reason that Jim doesn't tell Huck what he's seen in that house is because, and this is something that doesn't get emphasized nearly enough in the criticism, is because Jim knows that if Huck knows that that his father is dead, then Huck will have lost his motive for running. And therefore, he will, Jim will most likely lose Huck as a companion. And if, and if Jim loses Huck as a companion, he loses his eyes. He loses the the assistance of a boy who can go out during the daytime and safely find out where they are. So Jim is perfectly able uh, of lying to Huck to protect his own self-interest. Now Huck gets back because 
later in the story, he puts a dead snake next to Jim's bedroll because he wants to expose. It's earlier, actually, in the story. I'm actually confused about whether it's earlier or later. He puts a dead snake next to Jim's bedroll because he wants to demonstrate to Jim what a superstitious darky Jim is, and this is a kind of stereotype of black behavior. Well, what comes along is is a live snake. The mate bites Jim, almost kills him. Huck helps Jim and feeds him whiskey and helps to get him uh, fixed up. But Jim almost dies. And in the aftermath of this episode, Huck takes the dead snakes, the skins, and throws them in the bushes and says, I'm going to hide those in the bushes and I'll, and Jim is never going to know what happened. Right? He'll never know what really happened in this in this episode. So, so both of them have ways of deceiving each other and then deceiving themselves about how they've committed that deception. Mm-hmm. You say... Mark Twain himself, when he wrote these fictions, was not always in control. They always took him places he didn't necessarily want to go, that the plot always pulled him along. You know, I I don't want to sound too facile here, but um, the, the river itself, the Mississippi River that, that pulls these characters along, you know, is, is, is sort of like that um, push that Twain seemed to experience when writing. And what it, where it took the characters is where they didn't want to go. It took them down into the belly of the South, where Jim was likely to be enslaved even worse. Exactly, yeah. When Clemens talked about, uh, I mean, his favorite figure for the pleasures of writing was that writing was like being on a river. Be- and he said, because it, it had no rules. You just went aimlessly wherever the current took you. And that's the condition he most aspired to was to be in in a sense out of control to let his mind wander wherever it wanted to to take up whatever subject he wanted to take up to be free in a sense to be inconsistent to just meander uh, and the effect of that in his writing was of course that he never he, he really didn't premeditate very much he kind of went where his his stories took him a lot of people have criticized actually sort of sloppy plot twists and things in Twain. Right. Much of his writing, certainly much of the unpublished writing, is unfinished because it would just run into dead ends, that he just ran out of things to say. As he said, his head was like a water tank, and the water would run out before he'd finished the book. Sometimes he would wait and it would fill up again, and then he could finish. This was what happened with Huckleberry Finn, which took him, well, almost 10 years to, to complete. So yeah, well, the, the, but the the point I would make about this is that that most often that river, that current that he thought was aimless, took him to places he didn't want to go, uh, and invariably the stories that he wrote took him back to childhood, back to the Mississippi, back to the 1840s when he was a boy on the frontier in Hannibal, Missouri. In a in a village that whose leading institution was slavery, yeah. So he he was he's our great poet of of the boyhood on the frontier. That's the story we all want to hear. Is how wonderful it was to be Huckleberry Finnish as pre adolescent children in a frontier setting. He thought of it that way too. But every time he went back, and he went back over and over again, thinking that he could recover that joy, the innocence of that childhood experience, what he fell into, almost invariably, was the tragedy of of slavery. And, and getting back to your idea of bad faith, you write, um, or you ask, what were the potent creative forces that transformed comedy for children 
into something so grave that most adults have retreated in bad faith from a reckoning with its moral implications. So, so most adults who read Mark Twain don't have the nerve to face some of the implications of his fiction. I think that's right. That's, that's another level of the bad faith. The extent to which Americans uh, have collaborated with Mark Twain in, in evading the, uh, uh, the painful moral implications of those stories. The leading example here would be, of course, Huckleberry Finn. It's commonly thought of as a combination of boyhood adventure and redeeming freedom story. Well, yes, indeed. It's thought to be a story basically in which a white boy saves a a black man from slavery. I mean, and there are even, uh, you know, movie versions of it and popular versions of it in which the story ends with, with Huck, in effect, handing Jim his papers and saying, you're now a free man. And it's clear why Americans would love such a story. I mean, particularly white middle-class Americans. This is a story that would in a sense, represent for us a triumph over an institution and a part of our history that is the most vexed and the most painful. But but Jim is free in the end, and, and Huck does heed his better instincts in helping to save Jim, as opposed to giving in to societal norms, which would have him turn Jim in. Jim is free long before the end. Ah. Jim is free, you know, by the time Tom Sawyer shows up at the Phelps Plantation, Tom knows that Jim is free. This is the, the end of the book where Tom Sawyer shows up. From chapter 32 to the end, yeah. Tom Sawyer comes in. We have this sort of what's called a sort of the great evasion, but it's treated as comic. Yeah. In which Tom Sawyer comes in and the spirit of the earlier novel, Tom Sawyer, is, as it were, revived in Huckleberry Finn, in which Tom and Huck collaborate in, in, in simulating a kind of boyish uh, escape with Jim from slavery. Tom knows that Jim is free and doesn't tell anybody in order that he can play this game. By the way, Jim is free because? Because the, his owner. Back in, in St. Saint Petersburg, Saint Hannibal, St. Petersburg. Where they started out. Where they start out, Huck's hometown, Tom's hometown, has freed Jim in her will, and yet Tom doesn't, reveal that and he sh- and he later f- expresses no guilt about not having revealed that and yet the whole point of not revealing it is so that jim can be thought to be a slave so that he and huck can play their little game play the rescuers of freeing him which almost gets them all killed tom right. gets shot and jim uh, is comes very close to being lynched as a result of this little game which turns out to be a very grave game the the fragility right the the precariousness of jim's freedom is dramatized uh emphatically in that episode. How free is Jim at the end? You know, he's legally free, but the trouble is far from over. Mm. Now, now um, another case where a story sort of gets away, I think it's fair to say, from Sam Clemens slash Mark Twain, <laughs> and where he's pulled into sort of moral issues that he really doesn't want to confront and indeed backs away from is a, a, a less-known novel of his, came late in his career, Puddinhead Wilson. Yeah, very much so. This is where it's the most graphically and clear. This has a very tangled plot. We don't have time to summarize it all, but let's have you just summarize the, the part of the plot that deals with slavery, race, identity in America. Okay. The, the thing that, that's important, well, there are a number of things that are important here, but the first thing is that typically Puddinhead Wilson started out as a comic story. Mark Twain was writing a a story about Siamese twins, and he thought it was very interesting, Siamese twins, because you could have 
well, in the sense two people are one person. If they're Siamese twins, one can be a drinker and one can be a teetotaler, and yet the teetotaler gets drunk when the drunk one drinks. So that it is this sense in which a person's morality is compromised by the very fact that they're part of a two-some. And he's very interested in twinning. And, and, and you can see that if, if you're interested in bad faith, mm-hmm. then having mm-hmm. sort of two people combined that mm-hmm. way would be a kind of figure for mm-hmm. the way in which uh, competing forces within an individual person would produce these kinds of moral contradictions. But what happens is that the, the story about the Siamese twins morphs. It, it, it stops being funny and starts being something else. And it becomes a story of a slave mother named Roxy who has an, a, a child that is the product of a illegitimate union with her master who, in a sense, rapes her. So she has a child who's born on the same day or within a very short period of time of another boy child in the same community, and she becomes the caretaker of these two little boys. And one day when she's pushing them in a stroller along the street, she notes that they look so much alike and decides that she will put her child in the place of the free child and put the free child in the place of her child. The implications of this are extraordinary. I mean, obviously, if that it works, it means that, that the idea that a slave and a free person can be easily distinguished by looking at them is completely uh, canceled. The, 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 uh, slavery is a fiction. Mm-hmm. It's a complete fiction. And identity. And identity. It's, it's a, a matter it's, of context. It's an, entirely a matter of context, who, who puts you where and so on. Another implication of this, of course, is that she, in freeing her own child, becomes complicit in the very behavior that produces the problem of slavery in the first place. That is to say, the cure for this ill is almost as bad as the ill itself. Because she's she's turned her child into a master, and indeed he becomes her master. And he becomes her master. A bad master. A, a bad master. And, and she's turned the other child, the white child into a slave into a slave and he becomes a a not bad slave (laughs) Uh, and so mark twain you know penetrates to the very heart of this sort of contradictory the whole host of contradictions that that slave society involved and yet he didn't go there on purpose it was as though this funny story about siamese twins transformed itself into something else when he finished the thing he thought he'd written a mystery story he had no idea that he'd written the story that we now uh, discuss uh, critically, this, this fabulously interesting, penetrating story about the, the, the contradictions of slave society. It, it, that didn't occur to, t- to him at all. Well, he shies away from it in the book, right? He brings the book yes. back around to its comic, That's farcical right. side. That's right. He appends the, the original comic story to the published slave story, and they're, they're published just side by side, in this kind of anomalous way, in a way that really hadn't been worked through by critics until, oh, probably the last 25 years, in which we began to make much better sense of the meaning of this totally fractured, uh, if you want, uh, powerfully and meaningfully imperfect uh, narrative. And and more and more Mark Twain, uh, Sam Clemens' criticism has come around to that view that the work is imperfect, but that's uh, almost invariably its meaning that you have to look for the meaning in the, in the manifest uh, imperfections of the work. Does this kind of 
struggle and this kind of um, whipsawing that happens in Twain's plots, darting back and forth between grave issues and light comedy, does this make him a better writer, or is he a good writer despite this problem? <laughs> is this what makes him a great writer? It's a good question, Robert. I, um, You've read my book. You know I don't use... I mean, I call him a great writer, but I don't get into the question of what might be said to constitute greatness. It seems to me he's he's absolutely a fascinating writer and that he's indispensable, that he gives us a window on ourselves that we can ill afford not to look through. And he's the most limited in many ways and the most imperfect of our great writers. The best constructed of his novels is Tom Sawyer, and yet it's it's the least regarded, or one of the least regarded. The most important of his novels is almost certainly Huckleberry Finn, and yet everybody agrees that it does. I mean, Hemingway, you know, said it that you only the, it's only the first two thirds of the novel that you should read. It's actually been published, but you uh, don't believe that, do you? No, you. The meaning has to be the whole text, and yet the whole text has to be understood and made sense of, not in its unity but in its imperfection, in the way in which it breaks apart. So the question then becomes, why does it break apart, and what is the meaning of that? And in that, in here is its most powerful, if painful, message for Americans, mm. which is that he's struggling with something that we're still struggling with in 2008, is how to come to terms with this dark legacy of our own history. And it won't go away until we, until we do. Samuel Clemens slash Mark Twain, and that slash is part of this question that's coming up, um, uh, grew up in Missouri, uh, mid-19th century, the time of the Civil War. Um, and if you wanted to sort of bisect the country uh, north-south uh, at that time, you'd go right through Missouri, Mason-Dixon line. And if you wanted to bisect it from east to west, you'd take the Mississippi River. The guy grew up at the absolute junction geographically and politically. Um, you know, of the major forces uh, of American society at the time. That's right. He, the man was split in twain. Absolutely. Is that too easy or is no. that too perfect? No, not <laughs> at all. I think that's, the, I mean, and I think there's wide consensus to that view. In, 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 in the context of our discussion today, you would say he was a, a young man who grew up in slave territory and was involved in it lock, stock, and barrel. But in the course of his life, moved to the Northeast, became wealthy, became respected, uh, became the most important, probably, individual spokesman in the United States toward the end of his life. And there was no one who was more heeded publicly than Mark Twain, uh, say, in, two, in uh, 1900. But he was a very different man. And then there really were two two parts to the life, two parts to the person, Sam Clemens and and Mark Twain. I think everyone agrees pretty much to that. And, and I think, to go back to your earlier question, that, that it's that split that, that gives him his peculiar importance uh, for us, uh, you know, a hundred and more years later. And yet, um, many persist in remembering one Mark Twain who was the humorist, as you often refer to him in your book, with some irony, I think, um, as a kind of sunny, bright, um, clear-headed, straight-talking, um, you know, exemplar of American sort of pragmatism. In fact, I think of all the people who, in subsequent years, aspire to to being like 
Mark Twain, right? I mean, think of political figures. Harry Truman, you know, tell it like it is. But that's not the real person. Well, the thing about, I mean, and I guess, you know, this takes us back to this thing of quality. I mean, nobody writes better than Mark Twain in his style. There is simply nothing, if you want limpid, lucid, glorious uh, American ordinary language in prose, Mark Twain, it's so good that you don't even recognize its virtuosity. Uh, He's a standard, really, for a kind of American speech that contains all of the values, really, that we most, in a sense, respect in ourselves, a certain kind of simplicity and honesty and directness and ingenuity and candor and a kind of rough humor, a kind of pragmatism, a, a, a kind of land on your feet quality, a willingness to face things squarely, a kind of basic decency. All of those things he carries forward brilliantly in his writing. And yet, at the same time, there is this undertow of doubt about the the reality of those wonderful qualities. If they aren't crossed by and subverted by other tendencies of selfishness and cruelty and inhumanity that he also uh, can speak powerfully about that he witnessed in himself and that he witnessed in the world around him and condemned really as the damned human race, people who were simply incapable of being good, of being decent, of being honest, of being fair. He saw that in himself as he tried to write this autobiography. He wanted to tell the truth. He couldn't. So he was his own laboratory yeah. for this. And uh, Did he sort of enact a, what in some ways is the central drama of America's self-image, which on the one hand we're told, especially in this era of um, hype and spinning, is optimistic, sunny, innocent, and on the other side, the things you're not supposed to say. Compromised, blood on our hands, not so honest. Sure. I th- I think that for someone, a teacher, you know, uni- university professor as I am and a teacher I've been teaching for 45 years, to, you know, this is a very inter- interesting time in our history right now. And it is so hopeful. I mean, I mean, we have been, I think, for the last 10 years at least, the United States, I think the people that I'm close to, but I see this everywhere in the press, really have lost faith in our own ability to live up to our own ideals. We've become, I think, very disgusted with ourselves and with our consumerism and our imperialism and our selfishness, our our inability to live up to the things that we most value about ourselves. Not only, and of course, in loss of faith in leadership, in institutions of all kinds, including my own, but all the major uh, professions, it seems to me, have come into tremendous disrepute and so on. It's a very dark period in our history to the extent that I think we've we've begun to really doubt whether or not we can be the people we want to be. And I, you know, I admire us for that aspiration. And I, and I, and I, you know, it hurts me to see the country in this condition of lost faith. Mm. Knowing what you know about Mark Twain now, how tormented he was, how honest and 
evasive he was simultaneously, how much of a struggle both his life and his writing seemed to embody. Um, can you still laugh at his writing? Oh, my, yes. Oh, yeah. <laughs> sure. Mar- uh, you, you <laughs> Mark Twain's, if you look at Mark Twain's humor carefully, you'll see that, that, that most of it arises out of the perception of the very bad faith that I'm talking about. I mean, most of his humor has to do with human uh, uh, inconsistency and with human failures of, of moral uh, fidelity. Uh, mm-hmm. he, his humor very much is very much about, about lapses and, and, and weird. His favorite device, probably, particularly in his early work, is the practical joke. Practical joke is a joke designed on purpose to reveal in a humiliating way, the weakness of the person who's the victim of the joke. Practical jokes can't work unless people are caught, in a sense, with their pants down. And a lot of Mark Twain's humor is very aggressively humor that, that preys on on human weakness. Mm. And we, we laugh at it. We know. Each year they give out the Mark Twain Prize for comedy. And it wasn't that long ago that Richard Pryor got it. That seemed fitting to me. Yeah, I think Richard Pryor is a, a comedian that operates in many ways the way Mark Twain did, uh, from the other side of the color line, but with many of the same kinds of perceptions, yeah. And with this, some of the same agony, some of the same anguish that, that Mark Twain experienced. Strong memory of humiliations. Uh, anybody who knows anything about Richard Pryor's life will will know that. Yeah, and caught up, I think, too, in... in in an almost existential confrontation with with human nature, that is to say, is this thing really supportable? Mm. Is is it, can we really make it if this is the way we really are? And the world, as he sees it and as he enacts it in his humor, is really a pretty terrible place. Well, Forrest Robinson, it has been um, it's been edifying. Thank you, Robert. I've enjoyed it too. Thanks for taking the time to talk about my book. Forrest Robinson, professor of American studies at UC Santa Cruz, from an interview back in 2008. We were discussing his most recent book, The Author Cat, Clemens's Life in Fiction. And by the way, you might have heard me say back there that the Mason-Dixon line went through Missouri. Well, not exactly. Missouri is usually depicted as falling south of the line. But Missouri was a border state in the Civil War with different factions supporting the North and the South. And that was really the point I was trying to make. This is the 7th Avenue Project on KUSP. I'm your host, Robert Polly. And now, because we have a little time left, a few more thoughts from Forrest Robinson on Samuel Clemens, a.k.a. Mark Twain. This is from the same conversation we heard previously, but is a segment I have never aired before. Enjoy. Twain never forgot a failure of nerve, a humiliation, uh, a trespass. He remembered all the bad things and he ever did and never imagined. Um, you have a couple of interesting stories from his life, um, things I didn't know about, um, incidents that stuck in his craw. One was uh, a dinner for uh, John Greenleaf Whittier, uh, who was a poet and abolitionist. A lot of notables attended, Ralph Waldo Emerson, um, Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, um, Oliver Wendell Holmes Sr. Yeah, Emerson was there. Yeah. And um, Twain was the young humorist invited to uh, entertain. Uh, What happened? Well, this is a really important episode. This is a famous Whittier dinner. I think it's 1877, and Clements had just begun to arrive in the sort of literary elite. 
his friend William Dean Howells had, had had invited him to write essays for the Atlantic Monthly, which was one of the elite magazines. And he had done that and been very successful in the middle of the 1870s. This dinner was his was his a kind of step in 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 his arrival at the at the pinnacle in the American literary world. So he was going to be the featured one of the featured speakers at this dinner with all of these old gray eminences from an earlier period of American literature. And he told this story, which I won't repeat, but but he thought it was terribly funny. And it seems to have backfired pretty badly. It, it, it kind of pillories three of the most eminent of the guys at this dinner. It was, this was late in the evening. People had been drinking a lot. It was like a roast. It was like a roast, yeah. And it's not clear that the roast worked very well. There may have been some offense taken. Howells thought that it was a complete catastrophe and wrote to Clemens saying, you know, this is this terrible. And Clemens himself was convinced that it was a disaster and wrote these, these servile letters to Emerson and Whittier and Holmes apologizing profusely for what he took to be a terrible offense. They seem not to have been very offended at all. But for the rest of his life, he went back and forth between thinking that it was the funniest thing he'd ever done and the most terrible thing uh, he'd ever done. It was probably something in the middle. But it didn't matter nearly as much as he thought it did. And we wouldn't know anything about the Whittier dinner if it hadn't been for the fact that Mark Twain had had made what, what he took to be this terrible gaffe. Uh, he, you're right, he never forgot it. Uh, even though he, in, in due course, ascended to the very pinnacle of of uh, literary authority in, in the country. And celebrity. Absolutely. He yeah. was the man. Yeah. Um, another incident from uh, Mark Twain's past that he never lived down, a duel, or at least a, a proposed duel. Right. When he was a newspaperman in Nevada. Yeah. He was on the um, the staff of the Territorial Enterprise in Virginia City, and in 1864 a what was what would now be called the red cross it was the sanitary fund which was a fundraising enterprise to raise funds to support the uh, union army casualties but sam clemens was still it seems to me a southerner and he didn't like the sanitary fund he thought of himself really as a rebel as a confederate still in 1864 so he took umbrage at this thing and he got drunk and wrote an editorial in which he claimed that this was a fraud, that the that this sanitary fund fundraising was really a front for what he called a miscegenation society. Now, miscegenation was a new word in our vocabulary there. It means racial mixing. And the idea was that, uh, and this had been used against Lincoln in his campaign for re-election in 1863, that Lincoln was himself in favor of, of racial uh, interbreeding between blacks and Irish people. <laughs> And that that was that was, and this was going to dilute the stock and and so on, and this was thought to be very funny in 1863 and 1864. Okay, so he was saying this in a in a spirit of lampoonery. That's right. Okay, but of course it wasn't taken in that spirit at all. And the and the editor of the, the it turns out that the woman who was uh, in charge of this fund was the wife of an editor of a competing paper. And, uh, you know, accusations went back and forth. Clemens claimed he was drunk. Nobody cared. It was still a very offensive thing. He challenged this other fellow to a duel. The other fellow got a bigger guy to to stand in his place. And one morning, after all this sort of sound and fury, Mark Twain was gone. He just vanished from Virginia City and never did come back. And the papers made made a, quite a joke of it and said that 
that uh, Sam Clemens had absquatulated. That was the word they used to describe. He never forgave himself for that because, of course, it was an act of cowardice as far as he was concerned, and he was publicly humiliated. Uh, That was a tough one to forget. And and yet Mark Twain, the persona, the self-effacing, self-mocking writer, could easily say, I was a coward and ran away. He could have. Yeah, and he, I mean, and he, he did in some cases. And he cases. did in certain cases. For yeah. example, in his accounts of his own uh, failure to participate in the Civil War, he left. His brief service in the... In the Marion Rangers in, in Missouri. But he, As a Confederate soldier. Yeah, that's right, on the Confederate side. But he decided he didn't want to get shot at, and so he left for California in 1861, and, didn't, and the Civil War happened you know, a couple thousand miles away. So, And a great he, many Americans uh, view that with, um, you know, sort of affection. You know, Mark Twain, you know, didn't want to fight for the Confederacy and didn't want to get shot and left. And, and most people look on that sort of fondly. But he, he it troubled him. He, he never got over it. He never forgave himself. Even though that. he certainly wasn't a supporter of slavery. That's right. That's right. There was, it was, there was no way for him to win in that situation. How can you possibly criticize a man for not wanting to fight in the Civil War? <laughs> uh, if you've ever been, you know, to the Civil War battlefields and seen the kinds of casualties that those—it was a bloody, bloody war. Six hundred thousand people were killed in it. Uh, no, no rational person would want to have anything to do with it. And yet, he never forgave himself for the duel or for the war or any other instances where he—he he wanted very much to be a brave man. I mean, his greatest hero was Ulysses S. Grant, and later a friend. And later, a good friend, uh, Mark Twain. Actually, uh, Sam Clemens bailed Grant out of bankruptcy at the time of, of Grant's death, and uh, handed Grant's widow a check for over two hundred thousand dollars. It was the largest royalty check uh, in in American publishing history at the time. This was by getting uh, Grant's memoirs published. That's right. The, yeah. the, the managing to get Grant's memoirs finished and published uh, by the time Grant died, mm. and it saved Grant's family the terrible poverty. And that concludes this week's 7th Avenue Project. I'm Robert Polly. I'll be back with something new next Sunday at noon right here on KUSP. 